Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Klanker. Here on Media Path, we go casting about for new content from any platform. TV, film, print, streaming, broadcast, cable, YouTube, handheld device, word of mouth, whatever. And then we share it with you. You will literally feel your world and your brain expanding. We're so glad you're here. Wheezy, what do you have for us this week? So the first thing I want to talk about, Fritz, is The Prom. Have you watched The Prom? I I love it. I can't wait to talk about it. Yes, The Prom is uh, on Netflix. It is a 2020 American musical comedy film directed by Ryan Murphy and adapted for the screen by Chad Begulin and Bob Martin. From there and Matthew Sklar's 2018 Broadway musical of the same name, the film stars Meryl Streep, James Corden, Nicole Kidman, Keegan-Michael Key, Andrew... Rennells, Ariana DeBose, Kerry Washington, and Joe Ellen Pellman. The Prom had a limited theatrical release on December 4th, 2020, prior to streaming on Netflix. This film received mixed reviews, including Mary Solisi of Entertainment Weekly, who gave it a D, calling it narratively sloppy, emotionally false, visually ugly, morally superior, and at least 15 minutes too long. Jesse Hassinger of the AV Club gave the film a D plus, describing it as all-star feel-good zazzy nonsense. James Corden's performance was criticized as insulting, offensive, the worst gay face, and horrifically bad. Now, I find these harsh reviews to be arrogant. The film is a ton of fun. The writing is sharp. The song's fantastic. The lyrics stellar. The performances are engaging. And the message is critical. And I do love when showbiz mocks showbiz. And there is a ton of that within what some would call the sanctimony of liberal tolerance. I mean, how dare us want all kids to be treated with respect and decency. But most of all, it's super fun, big and bright and sharp and Meryl Streep. Fritz, your thoughts. I loved it. I disagree with every one of the reviews. Yeah. James Corden and Meryl Streep were hysterical. They had some really wonderful, snappy lines. I'm trying to remember the best one. I'll think of it in a second. But I, I, I just, I, I love this. And you have to put it in context of the last four years that we've been through. It's about inclusivity and acceptance, about having a gay child. It made me remember that we have made progress as a society. I love the writing, the uh, performances I thought were cute. James Corden's a very talented guy. Yes. And I love, as you said, the dead on way at Lampoon's show business. Um, the singing and the choreography were well done. They had two big set pieces where everybody danced that were pretty darn incredible. I loved it. It's a great lesson for teens and younger people to be free in their own identity. It makes parents think about how they would react should they have an LGBTQ child or a child that's just different from the mainstream in any way and how you would support them and how you would react to it. I loved it. I didn't even realize this had been a, a play on Broadway. But, uh, you know, it's about having a gay teen. And I, I just thought we were, we've been so divided over the last four years. This just reminded me that we've made a little progress. I, 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 I thought it was fantastic. I, it wasn't perfect, 
you had to suspend your disbelief in some of the ways they pulled off what they did to make this prom happen. I don't care. It was just lovely, and I enjoyed it. Okay, Fritz, but here's like, from the point of view of the middle of America, it's about liberal elites traveling to a small town and telling them how to conduct themselves and how to raise their children. So you could see where in in some circles this would be seen as preachy and how preachy should Hollywood get about social I- issues? Is it more helpful than hurtful given today's divisive climate? I, I don't have any problem with it. First of all, what's the message they're being preachy about? And they're not being preachy. They were as self-deprecating as they were preachy. They made themselves look like idiots, which was really one of the endearing parts of the whole thing. And the message was inclusivity. And there are lots of gay people in the theater business. There's no greater group to come and try to preach uh, you know, the, the gospel of uh, acceptance than these people. They didn't take themselves too seriously. They were funny. I had no problem with it. I don't care about the middle of the country. I, I'm, I'm telling you, it was a great message. As a parent, I loved the message. I hope children, particularly teens, will sit and watch this with their mom and dad and maybe start a discussion about it if they have a friend that's gay or they're a non-out gay person. I just think it's an important topic and it was an entertaining way to present it. I don't think it was preachy at all. I thought it was very entertaining. I got the job. Tina Louise has shingles. I fell fell off my bed. That was Nicole Kidman. That was the funniest line in the movie and it was... The writing writing was so sharp. And you know what else I really appreciate, Fritz, was the lyrics of the songs were were smart. And so many lyrics today are lazy. And these are really sharp and smart. And you could listen to them over and over again and hear something new every time. I, I had no problem with this. When you look at it in the context of a quarantine and the darkness of the last four years and how we felt like we had one step forward and two steps back from the uh, positive human aspects of the Obama administration, I thought that this show reminds us that, yes, we are getting somewhere. We're not perfect, but we are getting somewhere. Well said. All right, Fritz, what else have you been watching? All right, I, I want to talk about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix. Um, this was a spectacular show. Uh, Viola Davis as Ma Rainey, the mother of the blues. Bessie Smith is the queen of the blues. Ma Rainey was the mother of the blues. And Chadwick Boseman, who is uh, Levy, a horn player in Ma's band. This was an August Wilson play that went up in 1982. It was part of Wilson's 10-play Pittsburgh cycle that chronicles the 20th century experience of African-Americans. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom Uh, The play is about a recording session in the 1920s, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is also the title of a song that gets recorded during this show. Her band, with these fantastic, colorful names like Cutler and Toledo and Slow Drag and Levy, show up to record her new album, and Tempers Flare. And these guys in the band, they're kind of like the Greek chorus. They all joke around. They joust with one another about race and art and religion. And they're doing this while waiting for Ma to show up, who's amazingly late for this recording session, throwing the whole thing behind schedule, which sets the the tension of the play, especially with her white producers, Sturdivant and Irvin. 
Now, in the midst of all this, Levy, who is the trumpet player, played by Chadwick Boseman, he's really the key to this other than Ma, and Cutler, played by Coleman Domingo, come to blows. And, and Levy is this brash, young hotshot, full of himself, just killing time before he gets his own band together and becomes a bigger star than everybody on his own right. Viola Davis is dead on. She does her own singing as Ma Rainey, and she is this unstoppable force standing defiantly toe-to-toe with white men in a white business. This is a fierce black woman who would not be taken advantage of. She was an artist who would share her art with the world on her own terms. And uh, the play addresses that age-old issue of black artists being taken advantage of by the generally white recording industry is something that hasn't even been solved today. And it's delivered in, and this was August Wilson's genius in delivering this rhythm and flow of earliest 20th century African-American conversation. It was like listening to blues or jazz to your ear. And to me, the breakout performance was Chadwick Boseman. It was heartbreaking. He, he was really suffering from cancer at this point, was noticeably painfully thinner this might have been his last on-screen performance or one. And, and there is a rant he goes into about God and religion that gave me goosebumps. It is a wonderful legacy for this immense talent that went away way too soon. I highly recommend this. I saw this play 10 years ago at the Mark Taper Forum. It was a version directed by Felicia Rashad, and I loved it then, but I love the movie even better. Weezy? Right. When you start watching it, uh, hang in there because it has the timing of a play. And what we're used to in films is it, 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 a scene lasts only so long before it moves to the next. And there's a moment where it feels very claustrophobic. They're all in this recording studio that seems to be subterranean and they're they're in there and the scene goes on and on and on. And you and I, I turned to my husband. I said, I think this is a play. And then once you once you grasp that concept, you're just you're along for the ride. But at the beginning, you're you're kind of waiting to, and wondering what who are these people and why don't they cut away to something else? But boy, oh boy, is this about something? This is this is a play about everything, and the performances are magnificent. It's so heart wrenching. You know, it takes place in 1927. They were recording acetate, I think. And it was a disc that got, you, you put a needle down and it made a groove and you had to get it in one take. There were no pickups. There was, there was no alt delete. You just had to get it. And one of the things that, that Ma Rainey does to uh, establish some sort of control over white people in, in her world is that she insists that her nephew uh, do the opening kind of line that, that sets up the song and the kid stutters and that's her thing. She's digging her heels in. It's like, nope, this kid is going to be on the opening and they just have to do one after the other. And everyone's just getting extremely frustrated, but you, you get what, what she, what it is she needs to do. She needs to establish where she begins and the world ends and, and she does it brilliantly. And it's just a, a battle of wills between all the different participants that rises to a fever pitch. But when she unleashes and starts to sing, you're like, okay, I, I got it. They they need to preserve this. This has to go onto a recording. I see why this has to happen. It's just a beautiful piece of work. Yeah, I'm a big fan of August Wilson. And uh, 
what you talked about in uh, realizing it's a play. I always love movies that come from plays if they if they try to be true to the uh, the play because the writing is always rich. It's always about the language and it's always in a small space. That one was in this record in the basement of this recording studio. If you look at Fences, the astonishing performance by Denzel Washington, it was all done in his backyard under a clothesline, but, but some of the greatest verbal riffs. And that was August Wilson's gift. He got the cadence and the language of 20th century African Americans and each one of his Pittsburgh uh, run plays was a, a different theme in African-American life starting at 1900 and going forward. That was the one from the 20th century. And it was the, that topic happened to be, well, it was not only about uh, black people being taken advantage of in a white business. It was also a female empowerment message. She was a tough cookie, but had to be under the circumstances. So I just thought it was great. It's a great piece of um, history and theater history, and I, I I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, absolutely, highly, highly, highly recommend. Uh, so let's go to something a little lighter, but equally relevant. If you're a female living at home in a pandemic and needing a, a warm hug, that is the TV Netflix show Virgin River. It provides. So it's it's just a lot of heaven. Virgin River is a lot of heaven. It's scenically beautiful. The people who live in this town are lovely to look at. They're interesting characters. They're all unique. And then there's some drama. There's a little criming going on in the background that they must be dealt with. But uh, the Netflix series is based on the Virgin River novels by Robin Carr. It follows Melinda Mel Monroe, who answers an ad to work as a midwife and a nurse practitioner in the remote California town of Virgin River, thinking it will be the perfect place to start fresh and leave her painful memories behind. But she soon discovers that small-town living isn't quite as simple as she expected. She must learn to heal herself before she can truly make Virgin River her home. And isn't that true of any of us wherever we go? We've got to always continue healing ourselves. We can't run away from our issues. The series stars Alexandra Breckenridge, Martin Henderson, Annette O'Toole, and Tim Matheson. Now, Tim Matheson is going to be familiar to all of you if he is not yet. And and I would love for us to take a look at Tim Matheson's IMDb for a moment because it is hefty. You just scroll through and this will take us through to the end of the show. Uh, in not, if you go all the way down to the bottom, I mean, that, and you're going to get a little carpal tunnel doing so. But if you go all the way down to the bottom, in 1963, Tim Matheson played Michael Harmon on Leave it to Beaver. It was a pivotal episode in which Beaver and his friends Mike and Chuck each believe he is a shoe-in to win the school's Good Citizen Award, the winner of which will receive a plaque and be featured with a photograph in the newspaper. The award is dependent upon who brings in the most clothes for the school's clothing drive. Chaos ensues when Ward has to go down to the principal's office to explain to Mrs. Rayburn how three of his good suits got mixed in with the old clothing. So... If you're going to do some deep media path diving this weekend, I recommend that fine episode of Leave it to Beaver featuring a very young Tim Matheson. Back to you, Fritz. I think the fun fact in that whole thing was that Tim Matheson did the narration for the iconic Disney animation Fantasia, which uh, came out, his version, in 1985. That's pretty intense. I didn't know that. The guy has a rich and wide career. Yeah. All right. 
I, I want to talk about uh, David Attenborough's Great Barrier Reef documentary, which you can find on Netflix, BBC One, and Hulu. If you're at all environmentally inquisitive, you have to watch this. You have to watch it with your kids. You have to watch it now that we're re-entering the Paris Accords. This is another in a series of nature documentaries by David Attenborough, who, for my money, is unmatched in putting the wonder of nature on film. He did a film about the Great Barrier Reef, which is on the northeastern coast of Australia back in 1957. And this is him revisiting the topic with higher technology. And this is evidence of the heartbreaking effects of climate change on this natural phenomenon, the Great Barrier Reef, which is considered the world's largest living organism. And 50% of the reef has been destroyed by bleaching since only 2016. What a rapid decline. And this is because of the unnaturally hot ocean water created by the climate crisis. If you share watching this with your kids, you will feel really good about yourself. David Attenborough's British enthusiasm, all his narration, his little stand-up performances in between scenes, sucks you right in. The photography is second to none, both over the surface and under the surface. He gets kind of science fiction-y with this brand new submersible, this submarine that they ride around in to get right up next to the reef. This is really a wonderful film, and you you will learn a lot about the, the Great Barrier Reef and what caused it. It's caused by a very shallow ocean floor that drops to a very deep ocean shore over only a few feet. So it's a wonderful, wonderful series. You know, I got to go snorkeling out there about a year ago, Fritz. Wow, I did not know that. Yes. There are no words to express what that feels like to uh, be in that world. The schools of fish, and you're just swimming through them, and they don't even know you're there. It's it's just like now it's it's 3D, what you're experiencing watching this this film by Sir Sir David. You're you're surrounded by fish that are just going about their their day. They're all different varieties of fish, and I'm swimming through these blue and white striped fish that are just so vivid, and my brain is just screaming, you guys are all wearing the same outfit. <laughs> it's just unbelievable to be mm -hmm. there. I, I can't describe it. Then he goes sort of micro on the life of a coral reef and how uh, what builds these limestone towers that are a coral reef are living organisms and how these organisms have their own societies and how they fight with one another, like groups of corals so that another coral doesn't infringe on their territory will fight it off. It's it's mind blowing. It's so beautifully, beautifully done. And he he never says too much, but what he says is always very powerful and very enthusiastic. Even I plant like life is at constant war with each other yep. for nutrients, for sunlight, for whatever it is. It's like very, very slow motion battle. They're constantly going at it, just extremely slowly. It's yep. so fascinating. All right. So this is also on Netflix. After you finish Virgin River, you can go to The Life Ahead. Now, there is going to be some reading involved. This is in Italian. Okay. So brace yourself. Sophia Loren stars in The Life Ahead on Netflix. The film is directed by her son, Eduardo Ponti. 
Adapted from a French novel, The Life Ahead takes place in the seaside town of Bari, Italy, where Momo, a 12-year-old <coughs> Senegalese orphan, attempts to steal from Sophia Loren, I mean, really, who plays a former prostitute. With no great retirement plan, she's now caring for the children of streetwalkers, and she takes in this tough little scamp of a streetwise urchin, and she cares for him. As the story progresses, the roles reverse. It's quite lovely and very moving and touching. And uh, I just want to add, if you enjoyed watching Sophia Loren relate to kids, you will just adore a movie called Houseboat, where you get not only Sophia Loren, but also Cary Grant. Cary is upstaged by a very young Paul Peterson who crushes hard on his father's girlfriend, Miss Loren. And also, they are trendsetting because they live on a houseboat way ahead of Tom Hanks and that little kid in Sleepless in Seattle, which P.S. is now owned by my cousin's true story. Wow. Yep. They own the houseboat? Yeah, they bought the houseboat uh, from Sleepless in Seattle, and they and they renovated it. There are pictures here that you can click on for any. There's me sitting on sitting in front of the houseboat while it was under renovation. Wow. And, th- and there it is. And also, my cousin Greg looks enough like Tom Hanks that people riding by on their boats just definitely stop and stare at him. They're like, oh, my God, Tom, H- Tom Hanks really lives here. The sad thing is that that's a nicer redwood deck on that houseboat than I have at my house. <laughs> that's really well, you do need a be- lot of water retardant when you live that's on a houseboat. That's beautiful. Yeah. But watch the Cary Grant movie with Sophia Lauren. It's really cute. It's a sweet one to watch over the holidays, too. You know, I met her um, what? outside The Tonight Show years ago when we were over at 3000 West Alameda Avenue in Burbank. At the at what I call the Museum of Broadcasting, where Johnny Carson and Bob Hope and they all did their shows, she could not have been lovelier. I mean, she's talking to stagehands and you know grips and and below the line people, and spent so much time and was so cordial. I just I love huge iconic stars that are comfortable in their own skin, and she was she could not have been lovelier. And you know what, Fritz? I think that you and I should break into a true showbiz story at any given moment as if we're performers breaking into song during a musical. I really think that that's <laughs> okay. highly entertaining. So I'm going to tell you that I sat on a couch next to Tim Matheson during, it's part of, if you scroll through his IMDb, there was a moment where he had part of the ownership of of uh, Lampoon, a National Lampoon, because he had been in, in, what's that movie called where they go to college and they wear togas? Animal House. He had, he had been in animal, animal House, and I guess the guy that owned National Lampoon said, oh, we should partner with Tim Matheson. And there was a moment in time where Premiere was kind of like producing National Lampoon mini features, and Tim Matheson came to Premiere, and we were in a meeting, and you could I could not look directly into his eyes because he was just too handsome. It was like staring into the sun, but also <laughs> a, a very lovely, a very lovely guy. So those are two good Hollywood stories. Now, if one yeah. of us has a Hollywood story about what we're about to talk about next. Wait, did you have something to add? No. I, oh. I'm, I was fascinated by your Tim Matheson story. I hear he's a really nice person, too. Extremely handsome. So, yeah, no, very, just a, a doll, very much of a gentleman. And once was the, uh, the vice president to Martin Sheen. So he's also got some political That's experience. Right. That's right. So we're going to talk about The Crown. And Fritz, if you have a true real-life story behind this, I'm like, are you the guy that broke in the window and sat on the queen's bed? Is that Was that you? That was not me. Okay, damn it. All right. So we probably won't have a story to share with you about The Crown, but let's talk about The Crown. So it's season four, and we're now up to the Charles and Diana part of things. 
about whom much has been written and explored, and many of us have strongly held feelings. So in The Crown, they go deep, you will gasp, but how much of this is actually accurate? Is the criticism of season four warranted, or are folks upset because they are more familiar with the events depicted in this season? Maybe Elizabeth and Philip have been screaming at their TVs for the last three seasons. Like, that's not how it happened. I guess they'd sound a little more British than me. But um, for example, season four delves into Queen Elizabeth's complicated relationship with Margaret Thatcher. It's depicted that the queen displays more compassion and empathy than the Iron Lady to the point where the queen is even able to find the humanity in a woman as hard and unforgiving as Maggie Thatcher. But thoughts and opinions on Charles, Diana, William, and Harry are strongly held, and the depiction of Charles in the series is scathing. He's emotionally brutal to a young woman who fell in love with a handsome prince who was in love with another woman. Diana possessed a once-in-a-lifetime appeal which drove Charles mad because the woman adored by the world was standing in between him and the future he craved with Camilla. The story is so starkly told here that fans of The Crown are now hurling abuse at Charles and Camilla on Instagram. Camilla, thankfully, is now 15 years into her marriage with Prince Charles, and she, according to a friend, has a wonderful sense of humor, and this won't fuss her in the slightest. Unfortunately, the issue is rumoredly a painful one for William, Harry, and their stepsister, who are now navigating marriages and families of their own. In fact, the UK government is calling on Netflix to add a disclaimer to the crowd, making it clear that it is fiction. Another interesting point to discuss is the possibility that Charles is not genetically Harry's father, which could partially explain why he jumped himself and his family out of the royal cult. His mother was having an affair with a handsome chap named James Hewitt, who does bear a striking resemblance to Harry. You know, he could have just gone on Ancestry by now, right? And been like, you know what, you guys, I'm out. I don't need to be doing this because it's a hard life. Anyone who's been watching The Crown sees that it's it's a difficult life being royal. Well, again, I find myself the outlier. I think this is the best show on television. Oh, it is. No, there's no I, question I that it is. I think The Crown is the best show on television. The quality of the acting, the storytelling... The history that it portrays is second to none. It's, you know, typical British quality. It's an interesting take on American history from a British perspective. They're our most revered partner, or it was until the Trump administration. And every episode feels like a full movie, the way it portrays global events like the Kennedy administration, the moonwalk, the crisis in Egypt over the Suez Canal, the troubles with the Irish Republican army when uh, Lord Mountbatten is killed. All of those things are like a freestanding film. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, uh, but, but, the, but its gift is its perfect portrayal of the loneliness of royal life. Every single person is singularly lonely. The queen, Prince Philip, Charles, um, his sister, uh, they're trapped in their own prison. And uh, it's so ironic that they're entitled, but they're empty. Every one of those people and, and, and every one of these things, including Princess Margaret, who damn near goes off the deep end, um, is 
their their loneliness is really well um, written about. I, I worried that it was going to be an issue when they changed characters after the first two seasons, because I loved Claire Foy and didn't think she could be succeeded by anybody in being the queen. But Olivia Coleman became Queen Elizabeth after season two. And you're like, and Helena Bonham Carter is wonderful as Princess Margaret. And they, and it took me like 20 minutes to get into the fact that they were now the new royal family and they were perfect. I think it's, it's a beautiful achievement. Peter Morgan, who is the executive producer wrote most of the episodes, executive produced all of them. And I don't know what they do when they draw. Well, they're, they're all the way up to the present, although I'm only two episodes into season four. Uh, I've just watched Lord Mountbatten be killed in the boat explosion by the IRA and how he's trying to how Prince Charles is trying to reconcile his relationship with Camilla, realizing she'll never be his wife, and his father and everybody in the family is pushing him to marry Diana. So that's where I am now. No, I think you really kind of captured something with like with your depiction of like the just the the desperation and and, and the loneliness in the face of what the world's eyes and their expectations. You're you're born into this. It's not a career that you signed up for. And you've got everybody watching you and judging you. And not only are, are you born into it, but you're limited in what you could expect of your own life, be it any kind of aspiration in terms of your interests or in terms of uh, your your heart. Exactly. And 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 yet you have to conform in in a way that's suitable and and in alignment with what you've been taught your entire life. So even at the age of five, you're told, "Hey, don't bother dreaming, buddy, because yeah. you're not joining any circus." You like it's you all about the survival of the crown. That's all of their job is to make this thing continue through history, and they have to put aside their own desires and wants and, as you say, aspirations. It's all about the survival of the crown. It's a horrible life. Every one of those people, I've felt great empathy for. Uh, and they feel completely unheard. There's very few people that they could pour their heart out to or who would even be able to console them because no one quite understands what each one of them is going through. I think you and I, we have friends that we can confer with who may may understand because their lives are sort of parallel. But if you're Prince Charles, you are the only Prince Charles. There is no one else who cares what your specific and unique circumstances are. You just have to suck it up. And so by the time he marries, not the person he's in love with, he's done. The guy, at least it depicted here, is just raging. Go ahead, Fritz. And no, I I I am I agree with you a hundred percent. And I also disagree with the criticism of Charles. I, I think from the time he's introduced, which was at the end of the third season, he became a very empathetic character, and I just felt so bad. He's a guy that wasn't living up to the physical um, expectations his father had for him or his uncle had for him, Lord Mountbatten, and he was put in the school he didn't want to be at, and he liked to perform. He liked the theater. He was a softer young man than he was allowed to be in his life's role. And I, oh, I, I felt very bad for him. And I thought this actor who's playing uh, Charles is doing a great job. I, I really like him. And I, I don't understand the criticism. Well, that's because you haven't gotten far enough into the season. 
Okay, am I going to hate him in a couple of minutes? What you just described, the the young man that they show in season three, is more or less like Diana. She's 18 when she marries this guy. She doesn't get to finish growing up. She's left alone in the palace roller skating mm -hmm. because she, she doesn't have anyone to talk to and she doesn't have anyone who understands what her life has just become like. She's not supposed to be conferring with the outside world about the intricacies of royal life, but she's still a kid and she didn't get a chance to fully mature in, into herself. And so she kind of devolves into uh, self-abuse through her eating disorder. And as the season progresses, she's depicted more sympathetically. Each of the, each of the characters' flaws are explored. Nobody in this thing comes off without flaw. What's, yeah, what, there were what moments makes... where I, I didn't really did not like Queen Elizabeth. She was emotionally stilted, and I just thought, wow, just forget you're the queen. Just as a mother, loosen up. Unloosen those bolts a little bit. But then, like every other episode, they remind you that she can't because her job, she's the, the, she's the singular head of this vast concept called the monarchy, and she can't be loose. She can't be relaxed. She can't be uh, human because there's too much responsibility. And, and then also, you remember that. she's the boss of everyone. At the end of the day, yeah. she's the boss of everyone, even family members. And that's what makes the role so unhealthy. It, it, it makes the whole construct unhealthy, really. And there's a, there's a moment, I'm, I don't think I'm this is a spoiler alert, but if you think it might be, go ahead and mute. But there's a moment in the episode that that we just watched where Prince Philip is is finally talking to Princess Diana and seeming to be a little bit understanding. Like you're kind of like, oh my gosh, someone is actually speaking to her um, kindly. But they get to the end of the conversation and he barks at her, the only person who matters is the queen and that mm -hmm. and that he has understood long ago as a young man came to understand that and accept that it took so him he, a while though he, he it was did. a wild man. so now here he is yelling at like a 22 year old that she's supposed to just forego the whole rest of her life including romantic love that she mm -hmm. craved that she thought that she was going to be walking into this fairy tale of marrying a handsome prince He's telling her, forget anything that you ever hoped for in your life. The only person who matters, the only person who matters is the monarch. And, and the irony of that is she's the one that won over Philip, you know, in this flirtation they had when she he took her stalking for that bull moose or whatever that thing was they killed. Yeah. Um, uh, she's the one that won over the family. Uh, very consciously uh, made Prince Philip like her. And he, of course suggested to Charles that this is what he needed to do. And it was an arranged marriage for all intents and purposes, which was very sad. But she she, she was the one that she did the salesmanship to get into the family. And then it turned out to be hell on earth for her. Well, that's, you know, that's the irony is like she's she was a triumph. That's the word they use. She was a complete triumph. Well, she's a captivating person. And after she finished charming that family, she went on to charm the world, much to the chagrin of the whole family. Suddenly, the whole focus is around Diana because she was just this magical presence. And the rest of the royal family has to contend with that, this 
interloper came in and is stealing the spotlight. If Prince Charles and Princess Diana were walking through a line of people, the people on the side where Charles was were grumbling that they weren't on the side where Diana was. Everybody wanted Diana. And and then her uh, torture was that the one person that she wanted didn't want her. And then his torture was the one person he wanted was a completely different person. And the world would never understand that he's not interested in Diana when the whole world is so fascinated by her. So it was just this completely Shakespearean thing that played now, out. Now, if you Miller. look at the royal family, that's true. If you look at the royal family, every one of those people, Prince Philip, Princess Margaret, Prince Charles, all sought out these abusive, abusive romantic situations. You know, Camilla Parker Bowles was stringing him along and uh, really sort of humiliated him and staying with her husband and then ultimately marrying David Parker Bowles or whoever he was. And then Princess Margaret was always looking for this evil nemesis to joust with as a boyfriend. I think they were all dysfunctional in their romance. And then Queen Elizabeth had to be forgiving of Prince Philip, who was uh, out cheating on her when he was doing military service. So very, very interesting. But what do you think it's like for the members of the royal family to sit and watch this? Because you know they must be. I I, I don't know. I, I think, I honestly, I think the whole series is walking the line between trying to be historically, factually true and also showing great empathy for the royal family. I think, I think this is really a great look into, um, into this household. You know, they did that documentary that was panned in the media, um, and they actually did an episode about that. But that was all very superficial and sort of surface and didn't really show the royal family. This one really does. If you want to have some fun, you watch The Crown, and then you can go to the Smithsonian Channel, or it's right on Netflix. You can stream it called The Royal House of Windsor, which is the documentary version of The Crown. And that's really, really interesting because you're getting all the raw facts from the documentary, and then you see them dramatized with all this beautiful language written by uh, Peter Morgan on The Crown. He did The Queen with uh, Helen Mirren. And, but I'm just uh, wondering where his research comes from. Well, how does he know or, or speculate as to private conversations? Because some of what he's depicting is just very, very direct and quite harsh. And things that you would not say to someone who's struggling with something you're watching it and you're just thinking, I cannot believe that this is what you think is the right thing to say to her. It's it's painful. And so you it's a private conversation. They're inside a room or they're inside a car. And you're just wondering. But they all come he... from a socially skewed environment. You know what I mean? This this historic entitlement, this thousand year history of being a spoiled brat that you know, is hereditary. And what the way they treat one another is wrong. I mean, Charles just desperately wanted his father's approval. So he ended up going to Lord Mountbatten for his approval and for his fatherly connection. They're, they're all skewed in their thinking. 
And it's duty over family or duty over heart, you know? Mm -hmm. So they're all fundamentally broken in a... In, you I know. think they are, or fundamentally challenged emotionally. I feel very bad for every single one of them. For every single one of them, they're, they're in their own prison of singularity, of loneliness. Well, what was interesting was like in, in her short lifespan, Diana comes in and she tips everything over and says, I'm going to hug my kids. I'm going to take my kids with me on vacation. I'm going to be warm. And so you have William and Harry, who spent at least 15 and 13 years with her, being nurtured by her. And also the rules are relaxing in terms of who you can marry if you're in the line of succession. Can you marry someone who's not quite uh, noble? Or can you marry somebody who's been married before? So both Harry and William have married for love, it would appear. And so their experiences may play out differently. Their children's experiences may play out differently because Diana came in and made these groundbreaking adjustments. Yeah. And I, I think there was a time, this wasn't part of the crown, uh, but there was there was some material written about the queen coming to the realization that it, it, almost like a pope has to come to the realization that in order for this religion or this monarchy to stay viable, we have to adapt some more modern thought processes. There, there, we have to accept uh, uh, current social norms in order for us to stay viable or to have any credibility. So, And that's what I think happened to the royal family. But you said something really interesting that I haven't thought of before. And that is that Harry was the one who may or may not have been produced by uh, Diana's relationship with this other guy. All and I'm so, saying, Fritz, is that so? We let, may... let me finish the question. Okay, is, go ahead. so uh, 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 do you think that's the reason why he wanted to separate himself from the family? Because he feel he really feels no blood connection to this family, and is less obligated to continue uh, this this you know, living museum that is the monarchy. So here's the thing about that, Fritz. Oftentimes, I know nothing. I'm simply speculating. And so, so my theories can sound completely nuts, but I ne I'm never going to the wall for them. I'm simply telling you this okay. could, <laughs> this could well, be I a factor. I love your commitment. <laughs> this could be a factor because, like, we may, never, we may never know. They may never yeah, tell even us. If, even but, if it's something he doesn't admit to himself, you but know, he Fritz, might feel the technology, the technology exists to where he may know. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what I mean, whether yeah. or not he knows or not. But even subconsciously, he might feel less connected to the family than his brother. And uh, that's just an interesting concept. I thought, wow. But what mm -hmm. if what if he swabbed his cheek? And what if Captain Hewitt swabbed his cheek? And what if they both know? It would help both of them. They don't have to tell us. It's none of our business. But it, oh, if it really helped Harry point. and Megan and Archie make up their minds, you know what? We could move to Montecito and have pretty normal lives and not live. When you watch The Crown, even if 50% of it is completely made up, it's still a cold, hard life full of... No. The, yeah. 
Yeah, you said that before. I, I don't think that the factual structure of the episodes is made up. Because I think, you know, 70% of the people in Great Britain support the monarchy, mm -hmm. even though they do little to nothing. They're, they're, a, they're good for tourism. You know, they, they have no political say whatsoever. They do that. I always love that ceremony, the prime minister coming and she's tired of him in two minutes. So she pushes the button and he has to leave. Uh, I, I mean, they, they, they really have no political sway over the country, but somehow they have value. So, uh, so I think, especially Brits like Peter Morgan and the, and the production company, Left Bank Productions or whatever his company is, I think that there's a certain uh, obligation as a matter of pride that they at least attempt to represent the facts well. Plus, if, the, if it wasn't factual, I think there'd be lots of liability. I mean, who'd want to sue the royal family or have the royal family sue them? You know, I, I think they, you know, the dialogue obviously is fictional, but I think that the structural facts of each of those events are, are true. I, I, I just I don't know. I think you could be right. I don't know if the royal family has ever sued anyone. I don't know if there's any history of any litigiousness that 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 would really leave them when you sue you have to understand you're going under deposition and everyone you know and love is going under deposition so suing leaves you your private life wide open so they i think they've sued the british tabloids for a couple of their more oh, outrageous they? yeah the, the the tabloid press in britain is brutal yes even yes. compared to our country so i think they've been they've had some face-offs with them i don't know to what outcome though i i think the broad strokes of the thing are are probably pretty accurate because they align it with world events and they start out it starts out like like the Rachel Maddow show where you say I don't know where they're going but this is going to be important I'm for the ride yeah <laughs> like why is there a mine caving in and what does this have to do with the royal family and then you find out what what you know because they tie it all together beautifully that and was so, a beautiful episode that yeah. the welsh mining disaster which killed 135 kids or something that was a, that's what i mean each one of those episodes is like a film it was this freestanding beautiful piece of work Mm -hmm. And they're gonna, and it was all about when is the queen going to show us some emotion? And that was mm -hmm. a, like a pivotal moment yeah. in her life where she had to figure out what is the proper. Of course, I feel, but what is the proper amount of motion of emotion for me to let people see? Yeah, and somebody had to tell her that she had to respond to it. Which mm -hmm. was and a similar similar events occurred in the wake of the tragic death of Princess Diana. When is the queen going to say something? Yeah. She and, took a lot of heat for, you know, for like 30 days, not doing any public response. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not the, that far along. I'm only at the end of episode two of season four, so don't give me any information. Well, I think we should revisit this conversation when, when you finish the season. It's just, it's so beautifully done. And I agree no, with I, you that honestly, it has to be, it has to be mostly true because that they're not branding it as fiction. And it is about something that a lot of people know a lot about. So it's yeah, just- I think all the history is true. The dialogue is obviously fiction, but that's what makes it human. And I think they're, I think the, the characters are portrayed honestly. And I think, uh, I mean, you don't, 
hate them. You understand their attitude about stuff because of the universe that they've been born and raised in. The whole uh, storyline about Prince Philip's mother, who was this nun, became this nun, and she was a she was a princess in the Greek monarchy. It's fascinating, and that's all true because I find myself googling all this stuff as I'm watching this to find out how much of it is true. Really? So have you found anything that doesn't? Uh... No, not at all. The whole Mountbatten blowing up in a boat thing—I remember that happening. Oh yeah. The the whole Welsh mine disaster—I knew nothing about that. The um, I wondered when they were going to get into the troubles, as they call them, with Ireland, and they did a beautiful job with that with the IRA thing. But they didn't beat the political dead horse with that. It was, it was great. The whole thing about the um, uh, the astronauts visiting Buckingham Palace and Prince Philip being kind of uh, gobsmacked by their lack of human emotion. And then the queen says, but that's the kind of people they are. They're scientific. They couldn't do the job if they were somebody that said, oh, my God, it's the greatest view I've ever seen of the yeah. earth. They're not oh, like yeah. that. I, I thought it was every I, I'm telling you, it's the best show on television. And her, said her, that her relationship with with Jackie Kennedy. Yes, it and was then, really interesting. And then this season, you're going to see her relationship with Margaret Thatcher. I'm yeah. seeing it now. The one I saw now is where Margaret Thatcher goes out to uh, Windsor Castle and slogs around in the mud in her high heels and says to her husband, this is the most boring 24-hour period I've ever spent. These people don't do anything. I want to go back to the office. It was fantastic. I mean, it, it's interesting because, you know, one thing that you can't say about Mar Margaret Thatcher was that you know, I may not agree with her political ideologies, but she was a doer. She spent her whole life doing. Yeah, she and was Ronald Reagan in a skirt. Pretty much. I mean, she didn't have a ton of compassion and I, her policies were what they were. And it, it's depicted in The Crown that the Queen was more compassionate, for example, regarding apartheid in, in South Africa. The Queen was leaning on her a little bit and she rarely she had her the queen has her way of communicating with the prime minister gently her her wishes but she doesn't go too far out on any one limb and in this case she likes she, to bet on who's going to get a cabinet position i love that that kind of suggests like pick these and make me a winner but she's paying attention to politics yeah. and she understands world events and she understands history she's very informed she keeps herself very very informed and the royal family in their defense it's not really depicted that much in the crown but they do a ton of charity work yeah a ton of it and they get yeah. to pick their favorite causes and charles is very involved and the boys are very involved and so there there is i know it costs a lot of money i i just i can't think of a way that they could dissolve royalty in Great Britain because it, it, I, I think a, lo a lot of people just depend on them being there. And if we suddenly eradicated them, we we would feel sort of lost even here in the colonies. I, I, I just don't see it going anywhere. I see it evolving, as you were saying. Yeah, I think it'll be around. I think it's uh, it, it's like Britain's key identity thing. And I, it, to me, it's like night at the museum, but instead of mannequins, they have real people walking around. It's, it's yeah, it's, they just have to find a way for them to intersect with reality in a way that's uh, productive and and not destructive. In, you know, in a way where it's complementary. And I, I, the the only criticism 
I have of season four is Margaret Thatcher is played by Gillian Anderson, who's a wonderful actress, but she's overdoing the accent. It sounds like somebody doing a Saturday Night Live impression of Margaret. Hello. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's too, take it down a notch. So She, she looks really like her, though. Oh, man. She, she didn't really sound like that? Margaret Thatcher? No. I, I mean, she she sounded very formal and very British, but she didn't sound like, a, you know, a, you know, a, a, a you know, a, a satire of Margaret Thatcher. You know who's a better hey, Margaret You know who's a better Margaret you know. you know Thatcher? Who's that? Meryl Streep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Meryl Streep can be anybody. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we should wrap things up. Is there anything else that people should uh, be paying attention to this week? No, I want to wish I everyone mean, we, yeah, There's Merry a lot Christmas. of good stream. Listen, Netflix ought to pay us for this show. We've, we've really promoted all their wonderful products, but they deserve it. They deserve... Uh, I mean, it's first of all, Netflix... This is going to be a topic for another discussion, maybe with its own hour. Netflix is changing the face of television viewing. And I spent 40 years in broadcast TV, and I'm telling you, it's changing everything. The quality of the presentation, the lack of censorship, the lack of having to take commercial breaks and build your act breaks into commercial breaks. It's changing everything. Now, uh, TV entertainment is a buyer's market, whereas when it started, it was a seller's market. Mm. Where, you know... It's really an interesting time, and they deserve their success. Yeah, it's really it's it's remarkable, and it's such an interesting time because we're all, yes, we get to choose what we watch, but also we're all watching. We're all home right now, so people mm -hmm. are consuming probably twice as much as they would in, or, yeah. in an ordinary year. Yeah, we're all becoming experts on television. Without question. Yeah, we don't see all each right. other. Hit don't see those each other. Closing credits. Oh, David. you want to? I wrote these myself, Fritz. You're going to enjoy them. I know. I, I always enjoy this part of the show. It's one of those songs you can't hear enough. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank my co-host, Fritz Coleman. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Alex Gilroy, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.